Okay, so we'll start here with students here with messages, or I mean, uh, questions. When I come on, um, Rami. Uh, is yours long? Mine is just about what the vicar is. Oh, that's mine too. Yes, so, um, oh, okay. The question is, what, is what is the vicar for this surah? Uh, I don't have one. Whoa. Allah Akbar? What? I thought, yeah. Yeah, when you said Allah Akbar. Mm. I don't. I, don't. Mm. Um, I didn't. This was not among the swords that I delved into the meaning of mm. with Zikr. Um, and I long wondered if it's just because I haven't done it or. Uh, if it's because it's among the very early revelations of the Quran and um, I was had told myself I'm going to try to answer this question before this halaqa and I didn't so I just didn't get to it so if I do figure it out afterwards I'll tell you got a few questions but I'll ask this one <laughs> um, last night Sheikh you said to flag up if we covered something in the free halakha that we then don't cover it yeah. um, we touched upon briefly last night the connection between Mudathir and Fatiha yeah. in the structure right. so. yeah this is the, the connection between Mudathir and Fatiha and th this is uh, a, a very interesting question because Mudathir is revealed before a Fatiha and a, the sore that were revealed before the Fatha, there are not many. There, um, there are only a few of them. And namely, the, the candidates as sore revealed before the Fatha are Al Alaq, Al Qalam, and Al Muddathir, and Al Muzammil. Now, it is possible that it is really only Al-Alaq and Al-Muddathir and Al-Muzammil and that it is possible that Al-Qalam was revealed after Al-Fatiha. Um, because there, there is some... Um, so at least for certain it is three. And then that begs the question, do structurally and thematically, can we find the same um, the same core elements of Al-Fatiha in these, these three sore? You know, instead of answering it, I, I would actually like to know what you guys think first. So, Take it, reflect on it, and tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what I think. Um, yeah. So just just look at the Fatha and look at the various elements of the Fatha and see if you can find these same elements in in Muddathir, in Muzammil, and Alaq. And let me know what you think. It's not an answer to that. No, no, no. no, no the, 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 they'll yeah. go ponder it and oh, come back. back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two questions. One is um, you've said before that Surah Al Fat has a key to most of or all of the other Surah. <clears throat> and from the numerology aspect, from the 19, if you were a person who considered Surah Al Fat had to have six verses instead of seven, would that also be the six times nineteen to equal one fourteen? Um, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. 
And then the second question I have is that because the Quran, I mean, this isn't the only surah that makes somewhat of a reference to a person at the time period, like you said, mm -hmm. you know, etc. Yeah. My question is, do you think that commentators of the Quran or people who like, you know, tried to find anecdotes? Because to understand the Quran, you have to understand it during the time period that it was revealed, and it's only like more than likely that it would be referring to people at the time or how they were acting or whatever the case is. But it seems to be far more compelling um, to look at it through an individualistic lens. Like these types of verses, it's far more compelling to me that the ayahs themselves would be referring to a personal journey than they would be to mm -hmm. like an anecdotal personality of another individual. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that would be completely to the opposite of what it was intended to like accomplish if you're constantly looking at other people during that time period it's really easy to separate yourself and say you know they're clearly worse people than I would have been mm -hmm. that's so you know their moral character is terrible right. I would never be that type of person and it's far harder to look inward than it is right. other ways is there something to be said about the fact that the commentaries um, tend to attempt to draw connection to people of the time period far more than it is like an attempt to look inward and find steps to actually like demolishing the ego and the self? Um, okay, so um, the, the first question about numerology, I mean, I, I had never thought of that, that uh, it's interesting that six times 19 is equal 114, um, the ayat of al-Fatha and so on. But that's really interesting. Um, but the second element, uh, you know, I'm just very hesitant to to say the, the commentaries because um, there are the comment there, there are the the tafsirs like uh, Tabari or like Ibn Kathir. Tabari clearly collects reports. Tabari very methodology was that he uh, used the very earliest commentaries in which he receives transmissions. And he just reports what various transmissions, including a great deal of transmissions that attribute hadith to the prophet, that um, a, a good a good chunk of, of which are problematic. Um, and someone like Ibn Kathir is also very wedded to the Nakli methodology where you, you're just getting transmissions. But um, the, the, the difficulty is that I find that a lot of modern Muslims, and now, you know, so many tafsir are available, just, uh, just don't know how to read the text. So they, they, um, they will look at something like Tafsir Mataridi, for instance, or um, someone like Ibn Ajiba, or even someone like Razi, and they'll find the report about Al-Walid Ibn Mughira, for instance, and they will often, and I've come this again and again with so many students, they will not even notice the the passage that talks about, for instance, the prototype human rather than Walid ibn Mughira. And it's as if their eyes come to that part and gloss over it because once they've seen in Walid, the passage of Walid ibn Mughira, their brain locks into, okay, well that's what they're saying is the meaning and they don't know how to read how these commentaries argue in the alternative, like saying, well, here's one view, but another view is, but they, they just don't know how to, to, 
to read that code. Um, so yes, translations they they do do exactly what you said in that they they you know will constantly go back to um, as webinars would. Um, but so many commentaries and um, are very skeptical about Asbab and Nizul. And because the, the, a lot of the Asbab and Nizul, a lot of the occasions of revelation are inconsistent and conflicting. And um, the Asbab and Nizul literature is, has a lot of issues surrounding it. And so a lot of commentaries will... Um, and also the other thing is that, for instance, a lot of commentaries will have this discussion about how even if the Quran is addressing a particular person, the ways in which it should be read to apply beyond that person, but that discussion will take place in the context of a certain surah that you, you, you need to know where that discussion will occur in order to understand the methodology of the tafsir itself and and that's why i actually i uh i think the problem in the modern age is not in the tafsir but is in in good teachers i actually don't like people reading the books of tradition because i think people don't understand the books of tradition i think that there is such a huge difference between the, 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 just knowing Arabic doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, it just, it just doesn't equip you to read books that were written hundreds. And in every other tradition, I mean, can you imagine if someone just thinks because they know English, they can read uh, texts written hundreds of years ago in English? I mean, just, it, it, only in Arabic you get that absurdity. Um, uh, Although no one is as weak linguistically as Arabs in terms of their own language, Arabs in particular have really touched, lost their 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 relationship with their language, so their their ability to even read them. So I'm I'm just. Um, yeah, I'm just careful about that, that I completely agree with you that pedagogically when we teach our kids that, well, this was revealed about, you know, this person and this was revealed about this person, we, we deny them uh, an, a, a very important connector with the Quran, but that's us, that's not the tradition, that's the way we... Um, you know, the way that translations are written, the way that people who stand up and teach in Islamic centers teach, um, even the the way that curriculum, governmental curriculums in, in Arab societies are written, um, which, again, I mean, and you compare, you compare religion curricula that were written just a hundred years ago and compare them to those written now and you see the 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 huge difference in sophistication and so just a hundred years ago you know not even that long ago what used to be taught in public school to to Muslim Arab students was far more sophisticated than what is taught now. Um, so for instance, for now, we strip, you know, our, when we deal with the Quran, we take out everything related to all schools of thought except the most knuckly, the most transmission-based, most literist-oriented, and I think that all contribute to, to contributed to the impoverishment of our relationship to the Quran. I mean,
I was reflecting on verse 6, what verse of Fahjur, and like the concept of Fahjur, and then I, I don't want to like go into Muzammin, but I was thinking about part of Muzammin would use again Fahjur as like Ahjur Jamilan or you know. And then I started thinking about the context of the verse generally of like that, and then and then the uh, the the discussion you you had regarding uh, versus ridges and this kind of thing, uh, and I wondered what you thought, or if you've come across um, anything that that kind of ties uh, discussions and the concept of tawalla and tabarra to verse 6 in particular and then it, as a whole as part of the 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 motif or the the concept behind mudathir being um that the prophet in a, in a sense had already began through his life in a state of tabarra or disassociation mm. from um the the pagan idol worshiping kind of self-centered ways of life and mudathir as like an allegory from uh, of, of placing you know veils between himself and that which he knew was impure or uh, uh, you know p pagan or, or you know self-centered and then also then but but then having to also when when you put the veils to not have the veils in front of you as you receive you know the divine intervention and and then what to do next you know how how does one keep the veil against his community but also at the same time remove the veil so i was wondering what you thought about or if you if you've come across this kind of discussion regarding um, disassociation association and then this kind of like uh, difficult binary of navigating the two um well, I, I don't... Can you paraphrase the question? Um, I mean, the, 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 the question is in the... the, the there's a lot of the, theological discussion on uh, what, what things you, as a Muslim, may... Uh, be connected to in life and what things you should embrace and what things you should disassociate from and distance yourself from and uh, there and then the the, the Prophet ﷺ had effectively before his prophecy had already started this process that started from as early as we know that of uh, developing certain things in which he associated himself with um, but also creating considerable distance between himself and so many of the social dynamics around him um, and it, if the the question, if I understood it correctly, is that whether there is a discussion between a discussion about this whole notion of um, uh, removing or emerging from a state of in this, of mutadathir of the person who's uh, removing one's veils and re and removing and reading and purifying oneself in the context of the relationship of wala and bara the, the what you associate with and what you disassociate with and um and especially as as to because there, there's always this you know if you you want to purify but the challenge is, well, what in society do you engage and what in society do you distance yourself from? Um, 
and um, I don't, I don't remember reading a discussion about that in the context of al-Muddathir. I mean, in the context of, of many of the Quranic discourses on uh, wala, on, on who you can embrace in, in life, there are extensive discussions. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that with the, when we deal with the, the prophet, is that his his process of associating and disassociating from um, various institutions and society before revelation was done by his pure instinct, and um, and just what what his 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 inner self told him is right and wrong and so it is particularly significant because it it in many ways it's a study in what a pure soul would know is right or wrong so it is it it, it does influence muslim theologians considerably um that he always thought that gambling was wrong and they, so when they talk about, you know, what's known by revelation and what's known by intuition, that enters into it. Or that he always knew that uh, uh, going to the house of, houses of rep, uh, prostitution was wrong. Or that he knew he never drank alcohol uh, because he always thought that anything that intoxicates can't be right. Um, many other examples, um, it's, there are discussions as to whether idol worship is, is wrong because God said so or it, whether it's, 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 whether it is known by instinct that idol worship is wrong. So if you worship idols, you know, should you have known that it was wrong even if there was no revelation? Always in these discussions, they talk about the relationship of what the prophet did or didn't do. Um, so, in part, yes, you, you do find the precedent of the prophet before revelation always present in these discussions. And, you know, whether, however one's analyzing. But, Surat al-Muddathir, um, it's really interesting because, you know, the longest discussions of Surat al-Mudathir in the tradition, um, I can comfortably say that where you find like pages discussing Surat al-Mudathir are usually tafsirs uh, of Sufi orientations. They consider it very, very significant because it 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 like deals with the very raw material the building blocks if you look at tafsir like tafsir ibn kathir you you'll find the the tafsir very on sort of fairly short it's it's like you know it's nearly just telling you what the meanings of words are um and so you you don't get the sense there's much to it beyond that um, but I guess that's not that surprising because um, Surat al-Mudathir in, in it's either understood as basically a call to the Prophet of okay you know start your job now and let's pay attention or it's understood as a full constitutional message to the early believers about what they need to do in order to build a proper Muslim character. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. But I mean, it's um, I, well, the, I, just say, I, I want to underscore that 
remember the very early surah, like surah Mudassar or surah Al-Araq, the, the symphonic brilliance of the surah, the, the way they combine a discourse on human nature, philosophy, um, with just pure literary music is, is amazing. It's just, and, I, and then you really understand what the, the power of the beginning of Islam was all about why it grabbed the attention of so many people and why it began this whole unfolding that will change the face of of uh, life on earth anybody else before we go to seconds did you want This is a minor question. Um, it's more related to the Arabic, but in verse 35, it says, Is that the one translation I have ref says that's referring to hell, another one says that it's not, and hell isn't actually in, in the Arabic. Mm -hmm. Are there other opinions that say that it could be referring to something else, like maybe the signs or the Quran? Yeah, no, it, it does. No, definitely. It, uh, and in fact, even if you look at something like Tafsir Mawardi, who often will tell you like the many different points of view, um, he'll just list uh, the different reports. So when it says in the Kubar. Um, so, you know, they'll tell you well, one opinion is that it's hellfire, another opinion that it is the Quran itself. Let me see if he says others. Um, uh, yeah, so one opinion in that it is hellfire, another opinion that it is the Quran, another opinion is that disbelieving Muhammad is the Ihda Kubar. Another opinion is that this ayah, this surah is Ihda Kubar. Um, uh, final opinion that it is the hereafter that is the Ihda Kubar. Um, of course, yeah, there is uh, the, well, I mean, I don't know if, Ya Ibn al-Mughalla nazalat ihda al-kubar dahiyat al-dahri yusamma ul-ghayri pre-Islamic poetry which uses that expression ihda al-kubar and um, in this context ihda al-kubar means like um, the mo monumental turning event of the, of life. So the Ihda Kubar was an expression in pre I mean, it was used in pre-Islamic poetry to refer to something that had nothing to do with hellfire, nothing to do with the hereafter, you know, so it's just like a turning point. And a lot of people who, the, the theologians said, no, it refers to like this revelation is a turning point. It's like telling you Listen, Surat al every after Surat al everything is going to be different now. Yeah. Nothing is going to be the same. Because in the ha, since it's feminine, that could be referring to plural non-human things, correct? No. So could, is it possible that it's referring to the signs that it just listed, the moon by the day, by the... Well, if it's Jahannam, it, it's feminine, so it could be. If it's Asa'a, it could be again Innaha. If it's the Surah, it could be Innaha. Okay. So, you see, I mean, there's all of them. 
could be in the... See if, uh, if any people are awake. <laughs> I do have some questions from uh, anyone else, though, here before we move to the next. Okay, so from the chat, um, what does it mean for an ego to defer to anyone but itself? Can you give an example? Uh, you know, uh, I, I always do this in, in my law, uh, law school classes. I always say, how do we know anything about anything? And... You, normally, I don't get a, like an answer right away. Um, so I'll say, how do we know anything about history? How do we know anything about law? How do we know anything about anything? And you know, the answer is, someone told us so. If you're not willing to accept something that you read, something that you hear in class, you're not willing to accept a senior... Uh, I don't know, senior whatever, a senior physician, a senior lawyer, you're going to have a problem. You're going to be an, an idiot uh, because knowledge is, is based on transmission, transmission of claims. Claims about what happened in history, claims about what happened in scientific experiments, I mean, can you imagine if we insisted on, I will not believe anything unless I do the experiment myself? Good luck. Uh, we, basically, our whole epistemological nature, our epistemological framework, our whole system of consciousness is built on these dynamics of trust that I believe what I'm and so my starting point is X because I accept as my premises my assumptions what so you know how do I know that Alexander the Great existed how do I know that Thomas Jefferson existed how do I know that the Federalist Papers were written by Americans maybe they were written by people from outer space maybe they were written by aliens Maybe they were really written by the French, you know, camouflaging, pretending to be Americans. Maybe, uh, maybe everything. You know, if you go down the road of maybe, you can, it is deference. It is deference. You are always saying, well, you're always assessing, well, I trust this source, so I'm going to rely on what it tells me. Medicine is based on that, built on that, Law is built on that. Engineering is built on that. Everything is built on that. Now, what happens when we come to a certain field and we say, well, I don't know anything unless I experience it myself. We normally do that when it is self-serving to do that. Not when it's logical to do that, when it's self-serving to do that. So we don't do it when it's something that where our jobs depend on it, where we need to make a salary. We don't do it when it comes to being tested on an exam where we need to say certain things to get a good grade. We do that when we really don't want to defer. And the reasons that we don't want to defer, we don't want to be all that honest and express about it. So, someone could sit here, for instance, listen to an entire halaqa about a surah, and they sit there and, well, I don't know that anything I've heard is true. Why? Is it because I don't have the degrees? No. Is it because I don't have the position? No. Is it don't have the authentication certification? No. But I just don't want to believe. Well, why don't you want to believe? Is it because I'm untrustworthy? Well, no. And when you get to it, it's not really to, in their best interest to believe. Whatever it is that. So. That, however, that it, it takes a certain powerful sense of transparency, and honesty, to be able to tell yourself, okay. You really don't want to believe because it is in your best interest. 
self-serving, not to believe. Not because you have any legitimate rational reasons, but because your ego doesn't want to defer. So there are teachers that, you know, I might want to defer to and other teachers that don't want to defer to. If I'm a very so honest person, I will be able to catch myself when it is for purely egotistical reasons. So, you know, one teacher is in my camp, another teacher is not in my camp. Or one teacher is in, you know, an Egyptian, another teacher is not an Egyptian. Or, you know, the days when I was in Egypt. Um, I don't know, you know, all the silly reasons that people become polarized and tribal and whatever it is. That's what, that's what essentially is that you scrutinize. Now, there is, now I, I, for, especially for Sufis, a spiritual journey of irtaqa, of becoming elevated, is not possible without a teacher. And the first thing that you create with a teacher is trust. Sufis say, and not just Sufis, but also Sulis, that if you don't trust, then don't study with someone. You know, the idea that, well, I study with you, but I have trust you, it goes nowhere. If you have trust, then don't, then don't study. Uh, you can't study with someone you don't trust. Now, that's not, of course, the way that our current educational systems are created. You don't study with mentors. But there is a lot to be said for the system of mentorship. Um, um, I mean, we, we've seen what... And, and it's interesting because I've also... I, I've got to tell you... I mean, I've studied now um, Roman law with professors of Roman law, uh, and I've studied Jewish law with professors of Jewish law, and I've studied um, Christian theology with prominent Christian theologians, and I've never seen a people who distrust their scholars as much as Muslims. But in part, is because the system, the institutional system for credentialing Muslim scholars after colonialism has totally crumbled. So I would have a very hard time trusting a lot of people that are from Azhar, for instance. I mean, uh, uh, on moral grounds, on ethical grounds. Uh, because of the system, the corrupt system of governance that uh, controls Azhar. And the system of despotism and nepotism. And and so I, I, I don't, you know... Um, So I mean, we we are in a in a in a bit of a real catch twenty two, aren't we? Um, on the one hand, in order for your ego to deflate, you need to be able to trust and defer. You can't be self-referential. If you're self-referential, then you're there's no hope. Your ego will never deflate. Um, but on the other hand, our institutions of learning don't allow us to place much trust in, in people that we're asked to trust in. Um, so we're forced to be very skeptical because uh, um, our institutions of learning often appear like a joke, and they are a joke, uh, especially religious learning which sad because it's the most important learning. I mean, from experience, it's not the brightest and the smartest that go into the study of religion. It's usually often the 
the most dull and the most unintelligent, which is just, you know, just really sad. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it, it's affirmatively disastrous. I mean, how, how, could, how could we accept that when it comes to the study of Islam, it's the most dull and unintelligent minds are the ones that go into that field and we just are fine with it. Um, I mean, and, and how can we change that if, if those who go into the study of religion make the worst living? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not providing any help, but Yeah, it's a very distressing situation. Okay, how does one cleanse his or herself from weaknesses, both those we are aware of and those we are not aware of? Say one prays and gives to the poor but still has weaknesses. Are there any specific guidelines to go about that in Islam? Yes. Um, okay. I mean, it's a broad question, but but there are some rules that you can that can help you a lot. Um, commit yourself, commit yourself to a principle of no harm. This is a principle in the in those who are trained as proper shiuch, not. A lot of the people who call themselves shiuch in, in, in the West, um, you pretty much take an oath for the principle of la darar wa la dirar. You cannot commit harm. As you don't need to be a sheikh. La darar wa la dirar is from the Prophet and it is anchored in the Quran. That you commit yourself to say, my moods will not be an excuse for me to harm someone. If I'm just in a bad mood, that's not going to be an excuse. My grievances are not going to be an excuse to harm someone. My, whatever, my jealousies, my mood swings, my anger, my temper, my whatever. If you commit yourself to and it's not going to be a perfect score, obviously, but you're going to struggle with it. You know, I'm, I am going to commit myself that I'm going to get on myself. If I am moody, if I am temperamental, if I lose my, um, uh, my, uh, lose my temper, uh, and that, uh, that I will always go back and say no reaffirm the commitment um, and just because people are close to you or 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 loved ones it doesn't mean it's okay to hurt them we often hurt those who are closest to us because we think it's okay uh, oh they can they can put up with it no that's wrong and just because people are strangers it's also not okay to hurt them la darar wa la dirar the Prophet taught, it means exactly that. You can't hurt. You can't hurt. You can't hurt a human being. You can't hurt an animal. You can't hurt a tree. You can't hurt a flower. You can't hurt anything. Um, that's uh, the second major principle is always ask yourself before you, when you find yourself in the seat of judgment towards others, always ask yourself very seriously, how does it feel to be them? First, it's very alien and it's weird, but then it gets easier and easier. This is what we call empathy. But it's exactly that, that when you are, you know, Starting that down this okay, I'm I'm you know I've decided someone is a jerk. I've decided someone is a loser. I've decided someone is an idiot. 
before you do that, pause and say, how does it feel to be them? Let me just go through the exercise of let me just take everything from their point of view and see the world from their eyes. If you do that, time after time after time, you'll see how much you will progress spiritually. You will see how much Allah comes to your aid. A promise, a guarantee, a warranty. You will see the, the blessings of Allah in your life. These are two keys that are um, that are the path of the divine. They bring the blessings of the divine because very few of us actually do them. A lot of us, you know, say, yeah, 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 we do them. But no, no, no. Really do them? No, we don't. Very few of us do them. <clears throat> Um, earlier you shared um, about the number 19 question that you would ask a Sufi master to get a sense of where they are. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase this question. Are there any other quote-unquote qualifying questions that might be asked to a Sufi leader in a tariqa, for example, before I would give baya or commit to a prescribed number of repetitions of X, Y, or Z thicker? Oh, well, I, I, I don't <laughs> want to reveal the secrets of the trade. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, the, the reason I, I asked, I mean, of course, I wouldn't suggest that you do the 19 test um, um, because you have to know, like, why are you asking that? And, and know the, the, the literature behind it and so on. But um, when it comes to uh, in a Sufi tariqah or you know, committing to a word, um, I honestly um, There, there are a few things, like there are tariqahs that have been around for centuries and that have serious vetting processes for someone to be considered a serious member of the tariqah or a serious qutb in a tariqah if they reach the qutb that's a very high level. Um, and so there is more guarantees in, in something like that. So if you're going to join the rifa'iyya or Naqshbandiya uh, or Qalqashandiya or you know these are w very well established tariqas. Um, so the, the the key is to make sure that the sheikh that claims to be from a tariqa is actually from the tariqa. Um, and most tariqa nowadays uh, they they're pretty organized institutionally, so you can know whether someone in Britain or the U.S. is actually a has gone through the vetting processes of the tariqa. So that's one, because contrary to, to popular belief, um, you know, for someone to say, I um, I represent a very well-known tariqa, and to actually uh, have the evidence for that, or to, to be um, a, a recognized representative of a tariqa, from their headquarters, whether it's in Cyprus or in Egypt or in Syria or whatever, is a big deal. I mean, it's not it's not something it's not something you attain easily. Um, that's what so that's one thing. But then um, I am very the a, a true Sufi uh, Sheikh, um, especially the Sufiya. Um, you you will find that those who flock around them um, 
they are, if you look at the life of that sheikh, you find it's a life of giving, not a life of taking. Um, so unlike uh, the Christian missionaries or whatever who live in palaces and so on, you find that they're just um, uh, um, you know they they look at rational objective indications. You know, are they? I wouldn't join a tariqah or a, a sheikh that seems to be oblivious to the feelings of women who, you know, marries and divorces like they're consuming human beings. I wouldn't join a tariqah or a sheikh that is driven around in a Rolls Royce or, you know, in a an expensive, uh, a really expensive car and has an army of servants and protectors and guards and you know some of the absurdities that one sees I, I wouldn't uh, join a tariqah where a sheikh seems to um, effectively treat themselves as a god um, you know agreeing to people Um, you know, doing things like collecting his, I don't know, I don't know if you've, if you've seen stuff like that, but, you know, collecting his, the hair that falls off him and collecting his sweat and collecting his, I don't know what, and, you know, if he blows his nose in the Kleenex, people fight over it and preserve it and, I, the, the, these, to me, are just not what Sufism is about at all. Uh, the uh, Sufism is not about uh, worshipping an individual. Um, uh, in fact, the, the true Sufi sheikhs, I mean, the, the ones that know what they're doing, um, they seem more human than human. And... Um, so uh, quite often you wonder about how much they know because they they don't display it, and uh, a lot of times it takes a long time to actually discover that they know a lot. Um, they're they, you know they they they're very conscious about how much they trouble people with their knowledge. Um, so, in other words, they're sensitive people. Uh, every Sufi Sheikh that I've come to respect, I found them to be very genuinely caring, loving human beings. And everyone who has claimed to be a Sufi Sheikh that I finally come to really disrespect, I found them to be very insensitive. Um, so that's another thing. Keep up. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if the covering is to represent the veils of consciousness that we are to remove in order to establish a connection to the divine, are we to assume that the Prophet himself had veils to remove and moral insufficiencies requiring self improvement? That's a loaded question. Um, when we get to Abbas and Tawallah, inshallah, We'll talk about whether the Prophet was capable of or needed um, improvement. But remember that those who, who said that by the Quran talking to the Prophet, it's just talking to the Prophet and not beyond, not people beyond the Prophet, they have a problem. Because then they're confronted exactly with the question that you raised. When it says, you know, what Rush or what Rish either. I mean, he didn't worship idols and he didn't commit Rish. But those who say that, in fact, 
like the, the quote that I read, that in fact you can direct your, so I, if I tell, if I say to one of you, Ayuha qa'ad qum, and I'm looking at, let's say, grace. You know, all you who seated get up, and I'm looking at grace. In Arabic language, I could actually not be talking to grace at all. But I'm talking to everyone who's sitting. But out of politeness, I'm looking at grace. So I want to tell everyone else to get up. But I'm looking at grace to not embarrass people. So if you know the Arabic language, you would get the message. Oh, okay, he's looking at grace and he's saying, everyone seated, get up. Or, oh, who sits, sit, get up. So for that school, they said, it's actually, when it's said, purify and remove your veils, it's not talking to the prophet at all, but talking to all those who are going to follow the prophet. And that school doesn't have that problem. I, I believe, I'm from the second school. I don't think that when it said, um, um, when it talks to al-Muddathir, it was actually talking to the prophet. I think it was talking to all those who are going to follow the prophet. And it, and it, and the Quran often uses that style where it sends messages to Muslims but through addressing itself to the Prophet. And we'll see many examples of that, inshallah. Um, if you believe, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've heard, I mean, I've read the, the, those who said, well, you know, when it says, uh, well, abandoned the worship of idols, it's just reminding him to keep doing what he's doing, but it's that's not very convincing. Um, it, you know, unless it's addressing others, it's not very convincing. Let me just check in. Anybody have any questions here? All right. So, actually, I got an email from someone who was in the session tonight, and she says this session was wonderful, and she wishes that she had asked this question. So I'm actually just going to ask it. Um, so she, she's actually a former student that that was a, a, a woman, you know, in law, a Pakistani woman in law, and she says that maybe. Um, she was too meek in her 20s and she's emerging from that and finding some power and confidence now and recognizes there must be a balance. Um, how do we confront the enormity of our mission to bring a revolution while remaining humble? Should I believe that God chose for me some huge undertaking in that process? My problem is being out there, using my voice, writing talents, um, etc. when I'm afraid of being criticized or laughed at, etc. So probably in addition to the idea of removing the cloak and arising. Um, the, yeah, the, 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 the power of our mission comes from the belief in our mission. In, 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 in other words, it's like, um, the Prophet was known as a very humble and very shy person. But yet, in conveying God's message, he was neither shy nor timid. I mean, and it took, I mean, what we would call considerable self confidence to do a lot of the things he did. But that self-confidence, it didn't come from who are you, Muhammad. It came from his belief in the mission that he's conveying. So, um, a lot of times, um, so that's that's one thing. But I want to comment about the... the um, um it if i got i got the sense from the question that 
there's a lack of confidence, not, the problem isn't arrogance, but a lack of confidence. Is that true? I mean, I guess maybe the, the concern about criticism and being laughed at is yeah. an obstacle. I mean, arrogant, I mean, normally arrogant people don't, they, they, they don't, really care if they're going to be criticized because they, they think anyone that criticizes them is, uh, is an idiot or, you know, um, normally, but some, um, they're, um, controlling the, the ego and humility but at the same time having the confidence to go forward is actually it, it, it's uh, like being a balanced human being so you, you trust in god you look at yourself with a realistic uh, assessment of your weaknesses and your powers so when people point out a weakness, it doesn't surprise you because you already confronted yourself with all the weaknesses. So when, you know, someone says, um, uh, some, some people criticize my pronunciation. Um, I'm already criticized the way I pronounce things left and right. So uh, no, no, criticize, no criticism really um, I'm, I'm not threatened by laughter because if they're going to la laugh at uh, my mannerisms, that's one thing. And, and if, if that's the case, then all of us are, are, all of us are funny. All of us are clowns because all of us have weak mannerisms. No, no one is perfect. But anyone that laughs at my message, the message is not mine. And my belief that this message is from the truth that is Allah makes me immune to their laughter. They can laugh all they want. My, I, I, the confidence comes from the strength of the belief. Um, where control of the ego comes in so, you know, I'm, I won't, for instance, go and, and run for Congress and become convinced that, of course, I'm going to be elected senator because I'm so wonderful, because I have a realistic view of my abilities. Um, sometimes I err on the side of maybe underestimating my abilities, but that's fine. I'd rather have it this way. But at the same time, I can't be, because that's a sin, to be unjust to yourself in ignoring the gifts that Allah has given you. So I can't, for example, go and call myself stupid. Because if I do that, I feel like I'm insulting Allah's gifts to me. And, but I won't go around calling myself brilliant either, because then... I feel I'm claiming something that I'm not entitled to. Um, who am I to make that type of call? If, uh, of course, I don't know which student this is, but you know, if you've if you've gone to, this is a law student, right? Uh, if you're if you graduated from law school, is it graduate or still in law school? Well, whether you graduate or you go to graduate, I, I think you're pretty smart. And, I mean, of course, all my students are really smart. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're, you're pretty intelligent. And uh, don't, people often, when they laugh, they laugh because of their own insecurity and because they feel threatened. And especially when it comes to uh, Muslims. I mean, a lot of the, the sneering and laughing directed to Muslims is racial and, and bigoted. And 
the fact that your authorization for what you say comes from Allah should give you confidence enough. Um, and it doesn't sound to me, I mean, I might be wrong, but I'm not getting the sense about you, whoever you are, that you're, you have an ego problem. It doesn't sound to me like your problem is arrogance. Uh, it might be your problem is lack of confidence, but I don't think your problem is arrogance. And Allah will honor. Okay, last call. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you everyone for alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Thank you, Sheikh, for another incredible session. And we will hope uh, to see everybody on Saturday, inshallah, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for next. But we're going to do, are we going to do uh, Muzammal or are we going to no, do no, something else? No, we're going to do another surah, not Muzammal. And Muzammal, I'm going to postpone to the Tuesday after. Inshallah. Because inshallah, the surah on Saturday is going to be a prayer surah. Meaning the surah that is picked because of uh, um, prayers. prayers. Uh, I don't know who's still online, but assalamu alaikum. <laughs> goodbye, Thank everyone. Thank you for being with us. Awake or asleep. If you're asleep, goodbye in your dreams. <laughs> Hello, Adat. Assalamu alaikum, professor. Nice to I miss you. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Bye. 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 Bye.